Okay, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles as you're finding your seats. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at just the first five verses of 1 Timothy briefly this morning. I have four points that I want to make in regards to this. And if the scripture reading, I'd like to back up a little bit so we could see some context. Let's back up to verse 14 of chapter 3. Where Paul writes to Timothy and says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, this is referring to Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God uh, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you. For this word, we pray that as in the next few moments, as we uh, reflect on what you've said here, that we can uh, understand what, by your spirit, you have uh, said through Paul to that church and what your spirit says through your word to uh, all churches in all times, including us today. And so we pray you help us to, to understand and uh, we that we would apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The topic today, as can be seen from the very first verse of the passage that we just read, well, the, the first, per, first verse of chapter four, is the topic of those who depart from the Christian faith. Those who depart from the Christian faith. There's a, it's an unfortunate term. It's a term that's being used today, though, kind of as a contemporary way of doing this. You've heard us talk about this before as deconstruction. People are deconstructing their faith. You can think of a lot of prominent, uh, especially evangelical leaders who have done this. Um, I just gathered a few. You might be able to think of some more. Rhett and Link. Did you guys, is anybody familiar with Rhett and Link, the YouTubers? Um, Rhett and Link were professed Christians and have now um, departed from the, the faith. Um, Kevin Max of DC Talk, who was down with the DC Talk back in the day, right? Some of us, okay. Kevin, Kevin Max has now uh, also deconstructed his faith. Uh, Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, we've mentioned him before. Uh, Paul Maxwell was somebody that I'd read before. He was a writer at Desiring God. He, I remember his defection several years ago. Um, Derek Webb from Cademan's Call. Okay, who are some others that I'm not even thinking about? 
Joshua Harris. And I have a few informa- a little bit of information here about Joshua Harris, probably the most well-known. Um, I know I'm older than many of you in here, but Joshua Harris was very popular for writing the book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, to, uh, accused of uh, purity culture, um, or was a target of books who were a target of uh, those who had an ire against purity culture. Several years ago, I believe it was in 2019, he announced that he was divorcing from his wife, which was fairly shocking to a lot of people. I think he'd already stepped down from his church. And then he announced that he was divorcing from his wife. And then subsequent to that, he had a, uh, an Instagram post that shared a little more information. He said this, quote, the information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase for this is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a, a different way to practice faith. And by this, he was talking about progressive Christians who who basically have deconstructed, don't believe any of the uh, uh, Christian teaching and doctrine, but but still kind of claim an affection for Jesus in some way. Uh, Progressive Christianity. That's what he's referring to here. He says, many people tell me that there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. By all the measurements that I have, For defining a Christian, I am not one. Probably the most famous defection from the faith. And famous deconstruction story. A couple of years after this, uh, this was kind of a blip on the news. uh, And maybe you were familiar with his original announcement, but you weren't familiar with two years after that in 2021, he launched a five-week course. Does anyone remember this? He launched a five-week course titled Reframe Your Story which included a quote, and this is a quote from the website, a deconstruction starter pack that would help you deconstruct for the low, low price of $275. Okay, so doing something entirely unsurprising with anybody with, uh, uh, for anyone who is familiar with the Big Eve or grifting, ditch the dogma, but desire the dollars. There was a, a, apparently a tremendous amount of uh, feedback, he said, but I'd say pushback or backlash, and he ended up pulling the course actually after a couple of days. So that's why you may not remember this story, but you, you could get the deconstruction starter pack for $275. Uh, and actually, he did offer it free for, quote, anyone harmed by purity culture or by my books. That's the topic of our text today. Deconstruction, which I think is, is, he says, is that's the popular phrase nowadays. He says the biblical phrase is following, falling away. Let me give you kind of the more old-fashioned or technical phrase for it, and that is apostasy, apostatizing, falling away from the faith. So we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to do this in four parts. And here's, here's the first part. The apostasy of false professors in verse 1. Notice the kind of the, the uh, main focus there is in the middle of that verse. Now, the Spirit expressly says 
that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Depart from the faith. And here that Greek word is where the word we get for apostatize or apostasy. Apostasantai is the word. And now let me give you kind of the meaning of the word. That's, that's a falling away or a, a going away, but a general falling away. And here's a definition for apostasy. A, a general falling away from religion or a denial of the faith by those who once held it and professed to hold it. A denial of the faith, faith by those who once held it or professed to hold it. So those who never have professed to be a Christian uh, are not technically, in the sense, apostatizing. Those who apostatize or who commit apostasy are those who profess the faith and then reject it or deny it. Some actually restrict this term to... Um, yeah, let me deal with this real quickly. Some actually have restricted this term to saying that this actually, you can never truly apostatize until you die. Um, I, I, don't, I don't hold that view. I don't think that that's kind of the scriptural idea. I don't think Paul is writing about people who have died and now we can definitively know. I think it's a term that's, so, so in other words, I, I think you could say, uh, uh, maybe that, that idea is confusing the concept of election. Like, can we look at somebody who's rejecting the faith and saying they're not elect? No. We can't make that verdict because we don't know what the Lord's going to do in their heart or how he's going to work, how he's going to be saved. Uh, while they're still living and breathing and have a, a heartbeat, the Lord can change them. So we would never refer to somebody who is presently in the state of unbelief or somebody who had believed, professed faith, and then turned back from it. Uh, we would not say, oh, they're not elect. That's a different category, you see. But apostatizing is a term that's, that's a temporal description. It's describing the now. So do we have to wait until somebody has passed on before we can say this? Or is that the terminology that the, Bibli that the Bible gives for those who are in the present state of rejecting what they once believed? That's, that, I think, is a more fitting description of how the word apostasy is used here. It's interesting, he says that this, is, this will happen in later times. You're very familiar with the terms of the last days. Um, some view the last days as something that's going to happen in the future. This, without getting into it now, but the scripture is very clear that we are already in the last days. And have been since, since Jesus Christ. This is not exactly that term. He, Paul is talking about this concept that in the, the later times, this this defection from the faith is going to happen. And indeed, the last days are now. Paul's speaking about this in the latter days. He says the spirit, some will depart from the faith. He's using the future tense there. But then the rest of the passage is talking about present realities. The things that we should be looking for happening in the world today. In this interesting phrase, it says the spirit expressly says... What, what, is, what precisely is Paul referencing here or referring to here? Um, there's a lot of discussion about where, where does the Spirit expressly said this? Well, perhaps it's a reference to the words, uh, the, the, the Spirit saying through the words of Jesus Christ in Mark 
chapter 13, for instance, when he says that false Christs will come, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead, uh, lead astray, if possible, the elect. Could be referring to that. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus also gives these kind of warnings. He says uh, to his disciples, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth, birth, pain, birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. For false prophets in Christ will arise, performing signs so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's Matthew's passage uh, that corresponds to Mark 13. So perhaps with, when, when uh, Paul is writing here about the Spirit expressly says, maybe he's referring to the many words of Jesus to this effect, that we can expect that those who would profess faith in him or those who profess to be teachers uh, teaching him would actually, be fall, would actually fall away from the faith. Or it could be to what the Spirit said through Paul in his own words. We've encountered this passage a couple of times. Acts chapter 20. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus are, the church in Ephesus are over, overhearers of this message that Paul is giving to Timothy. And years before, Paul had called the Ephesian elders together. And he said that, uh, I know that there will, after my departure, that fierce wolves will come in among you, church in Ephesus, and will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. Which one Paul is referring to? I don't know. You could, you could look at many places throughout the scripture. There's a testimony that, that the defection of those who profess faith in Christ and then fall away, the testimony of which is, is on many pages of scripture. And so Paul is warning of that here. He's talking about the reality of that here. There are false professors. Now, are these, uh, and so I say the apostasy of false professors. What do you, what do you mean by false professors? Let me get, let me get into that. Are, are these people just misinformed? Are they misunderstood? <clears throat> there is a sense, of course, in which they are deceived, and we're going to get to that here in the next point. But there's also within them an inward drive to turn away. Notice it says, they, how is it that they apostatize? Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves or by paying attention to. Paying attention to deceitful spirits or the teaching of demons. And when you hear, when you hear phrases like that, that, you know, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons how often do we we think boy it must have been wild in the first century all kinds of crazy teachings out there that that would be that that christians would look at and go wow that's demonic teaching how often do we 
not think that that's true of the teaching that is around today. We look at it and we go, maybe, boy, that's kind of false, that's kind of bad. And instead, like, maybe we think of this as actually, do you understand that, that there's, there's an adversary that's working in the world and that he has demons who work in the world and that he works through teaching? The teaching of demons. I mean, I could think of some things and, you know, you know, I'm not a fan of things like the Enneagram, for instance. But I would clearly classify that when you understand where that comes from. You understand that this, this is all from uh, automatic writing and drug-induced trances and, uh, and they're just writing with whatever kind of spirits would tell them to write and they came up with this whole, this whole framework. And you understand that, you, and, and I hear words like this, oh, teachings of demons, I go, oh, that's a real thing today. That's a real thing. And so you'd have here, you look at verse one, you have those who had professed faith in Jesus Christ were a part of their number, and yet they will depart from their faith by devoting themselves to those kinds of teachings. It sometimes starts little small things and then ends up taking you in a completely different direction, away from the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. So are they just misinformed or misunderstood? There's an element to that, but there is a sense in which this is, this is an inward desire in them to go against this. Paul gives a parallel to this. If you would turn to the right, 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> Same chapter, different book. The next book, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this is in a passage, a well-known passage, where Paul is encouraging Timothy to preach the word. You know, this famous passage, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. And then he says this in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will know will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is inward directed. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So they share in the blame. There is genuine human responsibility for, to believe the truth. And there's genuine human responsibility for those who turn away from that truth. That's the first point to notice. The apostasy of false professors. And the second is the deceitfulness of false teachers. We can break this down further into the character, a sample, a sample of. He doesn't give an exhaustive thing here. But a sample of the character of false teachers. And remember, this is a theme that, that, that will recur all throughout this book. He gives a sample here of the character of the false teachers and then a sample of the content of the false teaching in Ephesus. The sample of the character of the false teachers is, okay, so back to verse 1, some will depart from the faith. And, and what's the instrument of that? Uh, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So it's their internal responsibility, but it's also, verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It's a short little snippet, Paul's description of the character of those false teachers. The, the word insincerity there is literally the Greek word that we get hypocrisy, uh, play acting. They're play acting. That's a, the term for actors 
in the ancient world for those who would put on masks to put on a performance. And then of liars. Because what they're telling you is not the truth. So this is, there's, there's two forces that are working here. You've got the, the force of the, those who wander away from the faith as an internal de de desire to devote themselves to, to false teaching. And then there's a plethora of other people who will, were willing to give it to you. The insincerity of liars. And he says this of them, whose consciences are seared. You know, that faculty of, that's a part of you that's, that, that inwardly knows and is able to, do, to determine right from wrong. And he uses the term, some translations have this, as consciences that are seared as with a hot iron. It's because it's the Greek word for, like, to cauterize. Have you heard about cauterizing a wound? Um, Janet, what would be a cauterizing a vessel, right? You are applying heat to the vessel to, to sear it, to seal it off. That's, that's the word here. He's saying that the conscience, the faculty that you have that enables you to go to, is a part of who you are, that enables you to recognize the right and wrong, is this, it's seared, it's numb, it's calloused. That's the state, that's a, that's a description of the character of these false teachers. Seared consciences. What, what, a, what a more devastating state. What a more devastating description could be given to you than, to have, to, than the statement that your conscience is seared, shut off, cauterized. Now, let me give you a, briefly just a sample of the content of what it is that they would teach in Ephesus. And Paul gives two things. They would forbid marriage and require abstinence from food, from certain foods. Perhaps we could get into this in, in another time, but this is, uh, let me just say that to summarize a little bit of what their, their content of their teaching involved it involved requirements or prohibitions that are not derived from the word of god or they were requirements or prohibitions that run contrary to the word of god or added to the word of god in other words these would be man-made rules or human traditions remember jesus in mark chapter 7 you could turn there with me if you would like when Jesus gives the condemnation to those Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of his day. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders and when they came from the marketplace they do not eat unless they wash this is one long parenthesis verses three and four this is kind of mark's like parenthetical background statement here giving a background to this this practice holding to the tradition of the elders and when they come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
And the Pharisees, verse 5, and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he, this is Jesus, said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, there's that word again, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is paralleling a little bit what, what Jesus is talking about with the scribes and the Pharisees perhaps is the backdrop to what is happening in Ephesus. You had this tendency for the content of your instruction to exceed far beyond and the requirements of the life of the, the people to go far beyond what is merited and warranted from the word of God. Binding the consciences of, of, those, of those people. So this is the deceitfulness of false teachers. But moving on here, what, let me, let's, let's think through these first two points and ask a couple of questions. They're questions that you're probably thinking. They're questions I often get. Who's to blame for those who apostatize? Who's to blame? The false professors or the false teachers? Uh, my answer is both. Both. In Genesis chapter 3, who was to blame for the fall of man in the world? Was it Adam? Was it Eve? Or was it the serpent? Well, all of them receive curses. So who's to blame for those who apostatize? Both. Here's the question I often get as well. Can believers lose their salvation? What about those ex-evangelicals? Or what about those deconstructors? Were they genuinely saved? And there's two answers that are usually given in regards to this. And I'll just address them briefly. There's two answers that are usually given. The first one is, quote, yes, they were when they believed. They were saved when they believed, but then lost it when they didn't. So uh, according to this view, and I can't do an exhaustive treatment of this, but according to this view, ultimately your salvation is grounded upon your faithfulness. Your faith becomes the, the ground or the foundation of your salvation. Rather than, which I understand in the scripture to be teaching, faith is the means or the instrument of your salvation. So there's one side that says, yes, they were genuinely saved when they believed, but they lost it when they didn't. There's another, there's another perspective that says that those who truly are believed will be saved. That recognizes the... Uh, but uh, this is referred to as the perseverance of the saints, but more on it here in the middle. Or, or the eternal security of a believer, once saved, always saved. But those are sometimes taken to, um, to neglect a very important component of that salvation by faith alone, grace alone through faith alone, and that is the reality of false professions. 
So the second view says, yes, they were when they believed, and they lost it when they didn't believe. The second one says that all who truly believe will be saved. Those who don't believe were never genuinely believers to begin with. There is the reality of a false profession or of, and if I could do kind of the quote, but like a, a faith that doesn't save. And what do I mean by that? What do you, we're saved by faith. Yes, but I'm talking about those who give all of the outward appearances that there's a genuine conversion of heart, but in reality, there is not one. Jesus even spoke of this in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the soils. Um, especially the middle two soils. Right? Jesus told that parable, a sower went out to sow, some feet, seed fell along the path, the birds devoured them, seed fell on rocky ground, and there was much soil and immediately sprang up, it had no depth of soil, and then um, since there was uh, no, there was seed that fell on um, among the thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them out, and then there was seed that fell on the good soil. And the disciples came to him and said, can you explain the meaning of that to us? Explain to us that parable. And he says, well, that message is the word. The message is the, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And he says of the middle two soils, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, it's, it's the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. It's the testing that proves the genuineness of it. And these don't pass that test. Or as John says in 1 John chapter 2, children, it is the last hour. And as if you heard, the Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists has come. Therefore, we know that we're in the last hour. And in verse 19, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Now, John could have said, well, they went out from us, but they've neglected what they originally professed. Or, they, they, or he could have said, well, you know, they, they didn't really come out from us. No, he says, they were a part of our number. They were from us, and they went out from us. But if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There is a type of, quote, scare quote, a, a faith that's not saving faith. This is important. It's a counterfeit faith. Now, that is not to say that's a function of the quality of true faith. Because there is true faith, genuine faith, people who really, truly do believe, but can have a weak faith at times. 
or a strong faith at times. This is not talking about weakness and uh, strength of genuine faith. This is talking about the distinction. This is a distinction in kind. There's a, a faith that looks like a faith but is not a genuine faith. So here's the third question. First question is who do, who's to blame for those who apostatize? Second question is, can believers lose their salvation? Here's the third question. Okay, how can I know that I won't deconstruct my faith? How can I know that I won't become an exvangelical? Well, this gets to the third and fourth points. One is the doctrine of the perseverance, as I spoke of here a moment ago, the perseverance of the saints. Those who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ will persevere to the end. And God calls, the scripture calls those who have made profession to persevere to the end. Let me give you a, a collection of verses here. Matthew chapter 10, the words of Jesus, when he says to his followers, and you will be hated for all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Later, we just read this earlier in Matthew chapter 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And here he's referring in particular to Gentile converts, to Gentile converts who are engrafted into the one olive tree, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in that kindness. This, right? You're, you're engrafted into the tree, but, but uh, you continue in it. He says, otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is a word to, to Gentile converts that, that are welcome, welcomed into the church. Of Jesus Christ, and he says, you know, if the if those if the real branches of Israel that got cut off for unbelief can be brought back in through their belief, you know, if, if just that's warning to them, you know, otherwise don't, don't get boastful about the branches that have been cut off and boast that you you're 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 put in. Or John chapter 14, Jesus says repeatedly, abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. Or Colossians chapter, chapter 1. I'll read the whole thing, but only part of it is on the screen. Where the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, how uh, he has now reconciled, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, am a minister. Or Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you as have you as you have always obeyed so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling so notice the emphasis on the perseverance of the saints those who persevere to the end will be saved 
But I like how that's immediately followed us, especially in this verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. So he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, why work it out? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the question is, before we move on to the next one, the question is, well, how can I know I won't deconstruct my faith? Uh, well, first, if you love Jesus and you love his word and you're fearful of it, that's usually a pretty good sign. You're fearful of deconstructing, that's usually a pretty good sign. That means you, you probably haven't, if you don't have any problem going, you know, I don't worry about deconstructing, then you're probably not, that's not a good sign. But the, the, my, my message to you be, would be, are, do you persevere? Do you believe? Will you persevere to the end? But it's not just perseverance. That's only part of it. Tinted at here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. And so here's the next part. It's not only the perseverance of the saints, but it is the preservation of the saints by God. There's a very, very important thing to keep in mind about persevering in the faith. And that it is not all you. You are sustained by the power of God and his purposes to save. Let me read to you to close. Wonderful passage from... Herman Bovink, who wrote a he wrote massive systematic theology uh, about a century or so ago, and then has written kind of a more devotional uh, level version of it, and it is phenomenal when he talks about this interplay, this relationship between the perseverance of saints, the real activity of saints persevering in the world, and its relationship to the preservation of God doing it. And I'm following Janet's advice here. She always says, if you're going to read long quotes, you need to put them up on the slide. So, um, so here, if this is helpful to you, thank Janet. Okay? He says this. And he's talking about the issue of you know, this, this whole issue of persevering and perseverance of the sake. He says, we put an end to all these doubts and certainties, uncertainties immediately when we think of the perseverance of the saints, not as an accomplishment of the human will, but as a work of God, which is from beginning to end, it's a, a, which from beginning to end is effected by God himself. We put an end to all the doubts and uncertainties if, in other words, we regard the perseverance of saints as a preservation of God before it can become human perseverance. Scripture leaves no doubt at all about this, but gives us in the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in connection with the covenant grace and all its benefits, a multitude of evidences. And then this is the part that was so devotional. It's just to read. Sometimes it's just best to just get a shower of scripture verses given to you. And that's what he does here. And you'll notice there's all sorts of parentheses here. Every single statement here is from scripture. 
The Father has chosen, he's giving the evidences here, the Father has chosen believers in Christ from before the foundation of the world, ordained them to eternal life, conformed them to the image of his Son, and his election is immutable, and in time brings with it the calling, the justification, and the glorification. Notice the scripture, the scriptural promises that this is what God will do to those who are elect in Christ. Continuing on, Christ in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen, died for those who are given him by the Father in order that he might give them eternal life and not lose one of them. The Holy Spirit who regenerates them remains eternally with them and seals them unto the day of redemption. The covenant of grace is sure and confirmed with an oath as unbreakable as a marriage and as a testament. And by virtue of that covenant, God calls his elect, writes his law in their hearts, and puts his fear there also. He does not let them be tempted above their ability to withstand. Establishes and completes the good work which he has begun in them. And preserves them for the future of Christ in order to make them partakers of his heavenly inheritance. By way of his intercession with the Father, notice all of the work that Christ has done, every single step of the work of Christ and the God the Father from before time and the, every single activity of the Holy Spirit is all working this in you now. Believer. Where am I? Yeah, by the way of his intercession with the Father, Christ is always active on their behalf in order that their faith may not fail, that they may be preserved from the evil one in the world, may be altogether saved, receive the forgiveness of sins, and one day all be with him and all see his glory. And finally, the benefits of Christ in which the Holy Spirit causes them to share are all without repentance and are mutual, mutually inseparably related to each other. He who is called is justified and glorified. He who is received as a child of God is an heir of eternal life. He who believes has everlasting life immediately. And that life, because it is eternal, cannot be lost. It is a life which cannot sin and which cannot die. He goes on, one more line here. But as in the case of sanctification, the preservation of the believers 
is applied and worked out in such a way that the believers, that they themselves also persevere in grace, which is given them of God. How can I know that I won't deconstruct? If you abide in the faith, the Lord sustains you to do that. You are his treasured possession. Your name is engraved upon his hand. And you cannot be snatched out of the hand of Christ. And all, as Jesus said, and they're all in the Father's hand. And you cannot be snatched out of my hand. So if you love Jesus and you're fearful of deconstructing, the encouragement is to continue to persevere in the faith. But don't do it alone. Do, do it under the understanding that Christ is working all of this out for your salvation. Amen. Amen? Let's pray together before we take the Lord's Supper. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful truth that you indeed hold us fast in your hand. That those who genuinely believe you are sustained by you, sustained by the power of God. And so help us to believe that. And may we not neglect the graces that you've given us to encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. We think of the, the grace and the means of grace of, of baptism. We think back on our baptism that we indeed were buried with Christ and raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. That indeed our sins were washed away. That we are indeed have taken off our dirty garments of our old self and have put on Christ. And we thank you for the means of grace of your word that showers us with the truth that you are working faith in your people. And so may we not neglect that means either, but we gather together and encourage one another while it is still called today that we might be receive the strength and encouragement of the scriptures. And God, we thank you for the means of grace in the Lord's Supper where we can regularly be feast on and be nourished with and refreshed with the truth that indeed Christ died to save his people and that he will indeed see it to the end. And that if we receive and rest in Christ, we can be assured that he will do that in our lives. So we pray, Father, that as we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we know that it is you who are working to will and to work in us. And may we be aware of that by your spirit that you've given to us. 
And so, Father, we now come to your table, to this supper that you've given to us to remind us of the work of Christ and to uh, fellowship with him even now as he is seated at your right hand in the heavenly places. And so we pray as we're preparing our hearts, confessing our sins, and then receiving the forgiveness of our sins through the work of your son, Jesus, and that by faith, spiritually, we commune with him and are one with him. And so we come to the table with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and celebration for what you have accomplished for us. And it is in Jesus' precious name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen.